Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, hello everybody, and welcome to Regenerative by Design. Today we have two guests that I'm very pleased to have with us um, on the show today. We have Sarah Day-Levesque and Anthony Carcero, who some people call AC. Um, And you guys, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for those of you who are not familiarized with um, your work, I'm going to let you go ahead and tell a little bit about your background to our audience, Um, because I've known you guys now for about a year and definitely my life's better for it because it's always wonderful talking to you and you're both doing really amazing work in this world. So I know there's two of you. So let's start with Sarah. And if you could tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you came to the point where you're working with RFSI and with Anthony and what you guys are doing. And then we'll have Anthony um, come in and tell a little bit about his story as well. Absolutely. Uh, sure. So I um, I went to school, to undergrad and graduate school, with some vision of saving the world through agriculture and didn't know how. Uh, I very quickly realized that I was not tough enough to be a farmer, and so I had to look for other means to do that. And so I ended up studying agricultural economics. Uh, and outside of grad school, I got a job um, working for a consulting agency uh, slash uh, turned media company. And so we ended up working in the agricultural commodities space and then also uh, conventional agricultural investing when it was really starting to develop as an asset class. Uh, so that was really fun. Uh, I enjoyed the work. It was fast paced. I learned a lot. But about five and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to shift my career a little bit within the ag space and um, do something with a little more impact. I was um, I took a job with a company called Acres USA, which is a 51-year-old company that educates farmers in ecological agriculture. And the folks there hired me uh, to run the events division for Acres USA, but also to do something else, just build something else that was not traditional newspaper media because they were looking to diversify away from that. And so working with the farmers at Acres USA, uh, I quickly realized that the capital that I'd seen coming to agricultural investment in general 10 years prior to joining them was not coming to the regenerative space. And so um, we founded uh, Regenerative Food Systems Investments in 2019 to really shine a light on um, the opportunities to invest in this space, not just in the farmers, but in the supply chain all around it. Uh, so awesome. we started that in 2019, and I will pass it over to Anthony and let him tell us how he came on board. Great, great. Thank you. Yeah, so speaking of a year, it's been almost a year now with uh, with me joining the team and so grateful to work with Sarah every day. It's so fun. Um, 
my background is a family fresh produce distribution family business. Uh, so told myself I was never going to be a part of that business as a young person and ended up eating those words as a, yeah, exactly. Uh, as a young adult and, um, was really blessed to be a part of it. And I actually took some time away from that business to take a health sabbatical and deal with an autoimmune disease that I've had since I was about 14 years old and kind of had this epiphany when I was taking that time off and I had heard about this regenerative agriculture thing from some some healthcare influencers that I followed, and I just got caught uh, in the rabbit hole, and and I have not escaped, and <laughs> it just continues to yeah pique my curiosity, and and I love learning about it. I love having conversations like this and, and doing the work, and I was standing in a in a point where I was doing some angel investing in the space, and I was super interested in how do we coordinate more capital uh, mm-hmm. to the space, and I saw what Sarah was doing, and. I, I proceeded to bother her until she let me join nice. doing the work and, and kind of <laughs> link arms with her. So she was nice enough to oblige uh, uh, May of last year. And it's been it's been an awesome year together. That's so cool. I love that because, um, you know, I, I feel like that kind of inertia is frequently seen in the regenerative world. We're like a small but mighty community. And the gravitational pull is is pretty fantastic if you've not been involved with regenerative events and regenerative communities. Um, I have to say like that story is just awesome. And I, and I see that time and time again. And, you know, it's interesting how you both came to regenerative as a concept from different angles. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about like when that light bulb went off and Anthony, you just alluded to that and it was definitely from a health crisis perspective. I think a lot of people will relate to that story. Um, Sarah, could you talk about when you were first introduced to the concept of regenerative agriculture, especially coming from that classic commodities, more classic ag standpoint? Absolutely. Yeah. So my, my ag econ training was definitely in conventional commercial agriculture. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, those first 10 years of my career was really in that space, but we dabbled a little bit in working with organic and non-GMO as it was coming into the commodity space. It wasn't until I joined Acres USA that I started hearing about this idea of regenerative. Uh, And actually the first introduction wasn't regenerative agriculture. It was called ecological agriculture, which is Mm -hmm. what Acres focuses on which is this idea that you can't be economical if you're not also ecological. Uh, And so it really kind of spoke to me from that sense. And then I realized there's not just regenerative out there. There's biological farmers. There's beyond organic. There's no-till farmers. There's all these variations Mm -hmm. of how we do agriculture. Yeah. Um, But regenerative is really the one that resonated with me, Mm -hmm. uh, even amongst all we work with because uh, of this idea of it. We're always improving. There's no, there's no end in sight. Right. Yeah. And I feel like regenerative is becoming a little bit more of an umbrella term that's starting to pull in multiple modalities Mm. of farming, Um, whether people like that or not. I just feel like there's a need in society to try to, to unify multiple movements in agriculture that are kind of moving towards the same big goal, big picture. And, and put them under one term, which I know a lot of people push back on and aren't happy about, but I see it on the consumer side and definitely in, in more of the pop culture adoption side of, of regenerative. So, um, for those who are listening and don't know what acres is, um, could, could you just speak to that real quick? So our listeners know how to like what it is and how to learn more. Sure. Acres USA was, again, founded uh, 51 years ago, I think now, by Charles Walters, uh, who was an economist and really saw this opportunity to tie this um, idea of ecology and chemical-free farming uh, uh, for farmers. And so he started a magazine 
uh, a book publishing and also an events division. So really there's three kind of uh, legs that support Acres USA and support farmers. Uh, and so you can learn more about it at acresusa.com. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, lots of resources out there that even ex have even expanded beyond the magazine and the yeah. books and the events. Yeah, it's a fantastic publication. So if you don't get it, you should. <laughs> it's a it's a decent investment for all the learning that comes from it. Now, we're going to take this term regenerative up a notch, a little bit more mm -hmm. um, philosophical, because um, in the last year, I have heard the term regenerative finance quite a bit. And again, it's taking this concept of regenerative and starting to overlay it and umbrella it into other segments that aren't agriculture focused, regenerative food systems, regenerative CPG, regenerative finance, on and on and on. And a lot of people, again, aren't real comfortable with that. And there are very poorly defined kind of rules about what that includes. And since you're both working in regenerative agricultural systems, regenerative food systems, and in finance, I'd love you to weigh in on that. So I'll start with this because it's in, this is interesting timing. So I am right now in the middle of taking um, Capital Institute's first regenerative economics course uh, with John Fullerton. And cool. so we are wrestling with this. Uh, the team that I'm, I'm with, working with, studying with, uh, is, is wrestling with this right now. And really, it's this idea behind, okay, so these are really great concepts, this regenerative finance concept. But how do we practice this? How do mm -hmm. we legitimately get into our system now when we are living and working and operating in a very reductionist structured capitalistic system mm -hmm. uh, so we we definitely struggle with this um the explanation of this regenerative idea of finance um, that works best for me so far and again i'm only halfway through the course is um, the way that john fullerton explained it which is there's these eight regenerative principles of vitality right uh and so you look at them, and I can't go through them all now, but go research them. Uh, you look at them and you think, wow, there's so many here. How can we possibly like switch our system so much to, to these principles? And the idea that he put forward was they're really to guide us as a compass. So think of like everything we do, what you're doing with Snacktivist Foods, what we're doing at RFSI as a map. And we use those principles as our compass. And if we do that, then we can start shifting to a more regenerative financial system or rege regenerative businesses. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really where I am right now with understanding cool. that concept and seeing how we apply it. Yeah, that's great. I love that you're in the midst of like a kind of a brain trust process, <laughs> talking to people that are very involved in, in a more of an educational setting to, to really get clear mm -hmm. on what this means. And because when we're in the middle of those conversations and those discussions, I think sometimes we forget that the outcome of those discussions might have a huge ripple effect moving forward on the like common adoptions of, of certain terms. So it's really important that you guys are doing that, especially in the thought leader position that you're in, Sarah, that's really cool. Now, AC, I, I have a feeling you'd like to weigh in on this too. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, I try and keep things pretty simple. And so I think there's a hot debate around what's regenerative agriculture and the definition of that. Mm -hmm. And the way that I like to talk about that is there's a threshold you have to be passed to be, I think, regenerative. And then once you're regenerative, there's a continuum, right? Where you're super regenerative or you're like regenerative enough to like say you're, you're on the path. Mm -hmm. um, and I would look at regenerative finance the same way. And I think that threshold or that kind of like pass go line is you're not extractive, right? And so people define regenerative agriculture a lot of different ways, but I look at it as to, to be regenerative and to kind of the starting point is you're no longer being extractive. And so how do we structure equity financing, lending, et cetera, in a non-extractive fashion? And there's kind of a continuum of 
it becoming perfect or as close to perfect as we can get it. But mm-hmm. that, that, you know, pass go line is you're starting with just not being extractive any longer. Yeah. It is a mind shift, um, a mi- like a mindset shift when you think about the financial model and then the concept of regenerative and how they both, how the financial model does need to change the, the, the view of what the outcomes are, you know, I mean, obviously ROI is always ROI, but is ROI just Mm. about money or is it about money? And then a bunch of other values that are also extremely important and can also have financial positivity associated with it as well, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I feel like it just kind of requires people to step back and take a bigger look. And, um, I, I like that there's a lot of discussion in finance. I know sometimes there is a little pushback on that. You know, people say, oh, of course, you know, the investors are coming in. But, you know, I think from the perspective of a of a brand founder and somebody who's working in this space on a CPG side, um, I mean, unless you have incredible personal wealth, you cannot grow a consumer facing brand at mm-hmm. any decent rate without capital. And that mm-hmm. involves you working with angels, working with venture capitalists, private equity and beyond. Um, and so it's an important conversation piece. It's in a very, very essential part of the ecosystem and will ultimately help define where this movement goes and how fast it goes. It's a big deal. hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, what are, speaking of, you know, just the challenges of scaling regenerative food system models and regenerative agriculture from your perspective, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're seeing to scaling this whole movement? Uh, I'm sure we both have a couple. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna start by saying, of course, we wouldn't. Have, I wouldn't have started RFSI if I didn't think capital was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, barrier for that. But uh, there's been so many other barriers as we've dug into this. Um, and again, again, given my space working with Acres USA, I'll just also throw in there. I think education and technical support for farmers in that transition is a huge one, uh, and not just this idea of educating because they don't know how to do it. It's more about this educating to make it work within the system that they're having to operate in. So that's also includes de-risking uh, a transition. Mm-hmm. Anthony, mm-hmm. add to that. Yeah, when I think about that, I think of a couple of things. One is diversity. We talk about biodiversity a lot in, in Regen Ag. And I think we need to talk about investing diversity. And what I mean by that is a lot of the times we think about investing as a monolith of those typical venture style CPG investments. And there's so many other ways to invest in food and food systems Mm -hmm. that are not equity investments that are not CPG brands, you know, across the whole value chain, different ways of activating capital grants, loans. I mean, integrative capital, you, you name it. There's really a lot of cool things that have happened uh, in financial innovation that have not reached ag yet that are starting to come. So I think that's a really cool piece. Yeah. Um, Honestly, we could have a whole, concept focus and we probably should on decentralized finance and democratization of finance and crowdfunding and how this is totally diversifying the funding stack. So like, you know, 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. you'd start a company and you're like, oh, here's how I start my company. These are the financial plugins that are available and here's how we'll grow. And now all those financial plugins have diversified and there's so many different ways. And it's a lot more than just diluting your company anymore. There's a lot of creative financing Mm -hmm. options available. We should probably have a whole session on and that. The, the other thing I think about when you say that too, Joni, is like we have to internalize the things that have been externalized for so long. Mm-hmm. And so taking some of those things and not just saying, are they a part of the ROI, but 
making them a part of the ROI. So whether that's through policy and reporting and holding people accountable, or mm -hmm. just through, we're going to actually measure them and measure outcomes and kind of know what effect they're having. Mm -hmm. Like that is how we change the the paradigm around. It's not just your IRR of the percentage investment, you know, a year over year basis. It's, it's a totally different mindset shift. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of fantastic work happening there. Um, I'm, there's a couple of people who are really involved that I'm hoping we'll get on the podcast in the next couple months just to take a deep dive into those metrics because yes. it's a really important conversation topic and there is some really fantastic work being done. So, you know, as far as investments helping to fuel this regenerative movement, we've already alluded to that and how important that is. But, you know, when you look at speed to market versus organic growth of a, of a movement. And there is a little bit of this push and pull out there where it's like, well, you know, eventually, especially with, um, you know, fertilizer access being restricted and very, very expensive, that these are natural pressures that will just essentially create the need for a switch to regenerative on the farming side. But, you know, with that investment, we can really capture that speed. Like, what do you think like the best strategy would be moving forward? Um, you know, like with mm. really hyperspeed, would that set us up for some potential catastrophes? Cause it's like a mass adoption is, is kind of moving into the unknown and global food is scarcity is a, is a real deal. Like where do you think that happy balance point would be? Uh, I think Anthony's going to have some good insight on this, but the one thing that, yeah. that comes to mind, because because we have a meeting later today that's going to address this, but is this idea that if we move at hyperspeed, are we moving all parts of our food system forward, investment mm -hmm. in all parts of our food system forward at that same hyperspeed? Because I mm -hmm. think about where we've invested so far in the system is really uh in my opinion, at the farm farm level, um, inputs, technology for farmers and farmland, yeah. and then at the consumer side. And our middle is still very much um, underinvested. And that's present, uh, presenting these bottlenecks and barriers for both CPGs getting yep. uh, ingredients and for farmers finding markets. So we have to we have to pace ourselves and make sure we grow, grow the system as a system. Yeah, the sexy middle, that's what I call it, that value-added processing it. zone. It's... Um, I think it's getting a lot more attention, uh, but I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, I do see, and cause I get calls literally every other day from farmers, regenerative farmers that are growing different crops. And they're like, Hey, we've heard that you buy from us. I'm like, well, yes, we, we do. And we're working on that, but we still have a major issue with dehulling depending on the crop or, you know, cleaning color sorting. It's not so bad, but milling you know, all of those different levels of the infrastructure that, especially for grains and even for livestock and dairy and, you know, specialty crops, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing if you're selling at the farmer's market, it's another thing if you're trying to go into the mass food system and that's, you know, it's an under, it's an under appreciated complexity of the whole system. The, the big food companies have got to change. And so I, I kind of push back on the notion that we're going to just totally recreate some new system that's going to take over. I just the incumbents are just too strong. Uh, mm -hmm. So if they don't change, like I think we're doomed. So I, I that's kind of my, my personal opinion. Um, and I think what folks don't understand about the box of oatmeal they see on the grocery store shelf is like the buyer of those oats, like they don't know the farmer. They've never talked to a farmer, the procurement person at general mills, like guarantee they've never even spoken to a farmer or maybe recently with all the, with mm -hmm. all the changes that are happening, but they're working with co-mans, co-packers, ingredient yeah. companies. And so 
the the changes have to come top down from those big food companies and then they'll filter through that middle supply chain like you mentioned down to the farmers and there's some really cool people doing some real project work around all those levels i think to make those shifts Mm -hmm. but consumption plays a role in in getting those uh, brands to change but also they have so much power now they're gonna have to they're gonna have to change so whether it's esg reporting pressure or just people inside of those businesses that want to make a a change for the better Mm -hmm. i think we're gonna have to see them lead to to see the results that we need yeah that's some high level entrepreneurship when you think about innovating inside a a, a, such a huge company i mean you look at the Mm -hmm. layers of bureaucracy in these multi-billion dollar multinational companies and um Mm -hmm. that's going to take a very unique skill set to innovate within an industry that's that old and that big do you think the acquisition of smaller brands and mid-sized brands that are doing this kind of work will help drive that entrepreneur innovation or innovation that's happening within these big companies? Or do you think that they'll be able to crack the code themselves? I think there will be both. I think there'll be plenty of both. Because mm-hmm. um, especially with organizations that don't have a big R&D budget, they're just going to acquire uh, the snacktivists of the world in five years, seven years, 10 years, once you figure that out, because they want to just go acquire that intel and just be able to run with that. And I mean, we've seen market signals on the M&A side that, that show that. But I also think there's going to be a heavy investment in in folks mm-hmm. cleaning up their own supply chains and, yeah. and not looking to acquisitions across the entire portfolio, um, especially as we see some of the cool stuff happening on the ag tech side that I think are going to enable some supply chain transformation faster than we've seen previously. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about practice implementation and then when we also talk about training, I mean, if you look at the content that even Acres is putting out today versus what it has put out in the past, and the, just the proliferation of soil health content and education to help these farmers and make it easier and more accessible to actually do the things that are regenerative. Right. Now that you just brought up a lot of great points there. And I think ultimately with anything like a mass adoption, it's it's going to be a blended model <laughs> of tools that are going to mm-hmm. take us there. And there's no one approach that's going to be perfect or going to solve all the problems. Um, so, you know, I've heard, um, Sarah, I think mentioned asset classes earlier in the conversation, and that's a term that comes up frequently when you're listening to any regenerative agriculture finance discussions out there. And I think for our listeners, they might really appreciate if you could help educate us about really what is an asset class. And if you have something that's considered a new asset class, how can we think about that? Like from a more sophisticated level, what does it mean? Ooh, I shouldn't have brought up the asset class conversation. (laughs) Uh, Also, I'll speak from first my original experience before I started RFSI when I was working as farmland as an emerging asset class because it was coming up as this alternative investment strategy um, and developing as an asset asset class on its own because it meant something different for investors in their portfolio. Um, I haven't put a lot of thought into what that looks on the regenerative side because it's so small right now, but we are seeing that now. So now we're trying to say, okay, farmland is an asset class. Agriculture is an asset class all its own, but now we have growing out of it, this regenerative agriculture. So we're not we're not quite at an asset class status yet. I, I don't know what de- what defines it. And I think Anthony might have some com- some ideas about what might define it as an asset class. But I think we do need to start to, to get there, start speaking about it in a different way um, mm-hmm. and can contrast to what we call an asset class when we talk about just agriculture or farmland as an asset class. 
Yeah, thanks, Sarah, because asset class continues to be something that I mentally have a little bit of a block to truly understanding. So this is helping. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, there's your classical like business school definition, which is really like equities, cash, bonds, like of asset classes. The way that I would think about that from an agriculture standpoint is uh, Trip at Trail. I'd love to talk about this, that ag has traditionally been a very sleepy, real assets, farmland heavy discussion investing in ag. And as we've seen this proliferation in ag tech investments, have we seen this proliferation in consumer brand investments and clean brand investments? You know, I look at those as asset classes, but what I think we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years is this huge focus still on production and on consumption. And then what's in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're still missing that. And and that's because those businesses are historically super, super heavy CapEx with really low margins. Mm-hmm. And they take a long time to get up and rolling, but they are really good, consistent businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just takes a long time to get that equipment installed, train those employees, get to the capacity that you can actually be profitable with whatever you're processing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think of asset classes, I kind of think about it like that from an ag perspective. Interesting. So I'd love to, you know, to kind of take a little sidestep for a second into this concept of the value added processing and, you know, the the limitations to really ramping up this whole movement because of the lack of investment that's in this path to market. And it's not the brands, it's not the farmlands, it's not the, you know, the ag tech and all of those things that are getting lots of money, that middle ground, it's a very fascinating rub point because when you look at all of the value added infrastructure in our nation, you know, it's, it's dominated by maybe 12, you know, different locations. Um, they're huge. You know, if you, for one, they don't toll mill. So you can't just call them up and say, Hey, I'd like to bring you a truckload of stuff and have it milled. You know, maybe you'd get their attention if you showed up with a couple of trains. Um, you know, so we have the big, 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 and then we have the super micro scale, like a, you know, say a, we have a local bakery in Spokane that has a stone mill and they do all fresh ground stuff, but they're not set up for scaling. They're not set up for reaching out and selling direct to customers or definitely not through retail. You know, when you look at like the, that, that as an economic issue, and then you look at the pressures of the commodity industry and how the commodity, the commodity industry is structured for efficiency. It creates some huge hurdles on how we can effectively create like the middle class of, of value added processing. Have you heard any models from people out there that have like a really disruptive or ingenious idea of how we might crack this code? Or are we going to try to rebuild it in that commodities mindset, but just on a smaller scale, which economically has some major problems? It's like, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, yeah, Joan, you know, I want to say like, yes, we know the model and we're going to announce it here on Snack to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that'd be so cool. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I, I haven't seen it, but this is where I continue to say like, there's so much room for innovation in this part. Like we've spent the least amount of time, I feel like trying to innovate when we talk about how capital can be applied to regenerative food systems. There's so much opportunity. I'm just not the brain to, to, to figure yeah. it out, but I know there's like you said, yeah. more attention is going right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a tricky behind. one. It's such a specialized industry and it's just one that most people know exists, but they don't really give it much thought. And, you know, when you think about it from like a high level engineering and um, manufacturing perspective, it could be a huge opportunity for someone who's really creative to really rethink how this segment of the economy operates. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think, AC? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Joni, what you're doing on the grain side is 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 awesome and very brave because this the typical CPG scale playbook is do your own manufacturing until you get to a certain point and then outsource to co-mans as you scale because they mm-hmm. have the capacity, they mm-hmm. have facilities across the country. But the hardest thing to do is to get them to produce something that they don't already produce or with ingredients that they don't already source or can't right. get their hands on easily. Yep. So that's where I go back to to big food. And I think, why can we have paleo tortilla chips the way that we have them now? Because there's big food companies that have acquired cassava flour tortilla chip companies. Right. So there's co-mans that have cassava flour in-house. Mm-hmm. So now if I wanted to start a cassava flour-based paleo tortilla chip to complete with compete with CATA or one of these companies, yeah. these co-mans have that ingredient, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same for alt dairy, right? These co-mans never used to have coconut milk to make coconut milk non-dairy ice cream, but now they do because Danone has so delicious as a brand and all these other brands have kind right. of popped up. And so there's got to be some young companies that carry that weight and that burden mm-hmm. to kind of send that market signal. Mm-hmm. But but I think that that's the biggest thing is when you talk about branded products, how do we get it so that it gets to the end consumer in a brand, but it's also something that's on an ingredient list that's readily available to yeah. these co-mans, to these co-packers to actually make the products. Yeah, that's a it's a huge challenge. And, you know, you can see where vertical integration, like the big food companies, I mean, they have the power and the, they have the flexing power to be able to say, well, you know, we'd like to bring in a new, you know, ingredient. And, you know, for them, often it's a, a matter of not having available scalable quantities because it like the supply mm-hmm. chain hasn't matured to meet those demands of like a huge, huge company. I heard a story a while back from somebody where they had a conversation with a big, one of the big established um, big brands. It was probably like a General Mills or something of that. I don't exactly remember which one. And they were looking into launching a frozen product that contained Teff flour because of all the superfood qualities mm. associated with Teff. But then when they penciled it out just to do a rollout to all of their most viable channel partners, there was not enough Teff in America to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this interesting push pull. Um, you can look again over at like the beef industry and you look at USDA um, processing for meat and there is a lot of disruption happening there right now, but meat is meat. It's a, it's a, it's a simpler thing. It's not a lot as much dio- biodiversity there. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like you need different equipment for one type of cow versus another, really, from my understanding. I mean, I grew up with cattle, but we never ran that side of the business. And, um, but there has been a ton of pressure from society and from USDA and all sorts of other organizations, you know, kind of pressures from the system at large to really unravel those mid-level access points after COVID when we had, you know, scarcity in our supply chain, because suddenly the largest centralized processing plants were shut down and that made us extremely vulnerable. So, you know, I just, it's like, it's a conversation that we're not going to get any true answers out of today, but it's, it's a huge piece and it'd be fun to see more think tanks really just talking about this topic, people who really, really know and understand it. Cause I know just enough to be dangerous. Cause I know what I need as a brand. Like it's, it's like me focused, like I need this and I need this milled, but I don't, I don't have the perspective or the insight of someone who runs a milling company. Like I don't understand what makes them tick. So I'm going to find that person. We're going to have them on the show. <laughs> well, Joni, the hurdle there is the biodiversity part, right? Because we have this carbon tunnel vision, but why? Because 
even though soil carbon is still so complex, it's at least something we can say, we sequestered this many tons, yeah, right? We can get so minute and simple with it. But that biodiversity piece is, why am I going to grow these four new varieties of wheat mm-hmm. when I have no market for them? Yeah. And so I think the Trojan horse for that is like, how do we get some blended products into the market? Yes. How do we get them into the supplement market? You know, you kind of see what folks are doing on the grass fed beef side with some of the organs as supplements and yeah. some of these other outlets. Like, I think we got to find a way to do that on the plant side as well. And then what, what ends up being the pressure or the scorecard or whatever for biodiversity so that mm-hmm. those things can be implemented, but also can have some sort of market outlet for them as well. Yeah. Cause that biodiversity piece is a huge, huge driver and, and consumers are pretty much completely unaware of it as a, as something that's mm-hmm. important outside of a wildland environment. Like I think biodiversity gets a lot of attention when you're talking about forests or oceans or rainforests or jungles, but they don't think about it when it comes to like cropland. <laughs> you know, I think most people think like, oh, grass. I mean, grass is like the ultimate monocrop. And, um, you know, if anything pops up like a dandelion, you kill it. That's like the gold standard. So, you know, it's really a paradigm shift for consumers too. And we're working on putting a biodiversity stamp on our packaging moving forward to be like, hey, our farmers, you know, on average use x amount of crop rotations and you know that we're hoping to go live with that going into the winter just to start that dialogue of like did you know (laughs) did you know that we need to like add more biodiversity and like how do we create a biometric like a a metric that indicates biodiversity strength as like a strength Mm -hmm. and then have that alongside the carbon and the water etc etc and so um it's a tough nut to crack though because not everybody has Mm -hmm. the understanding like where do you you have to meet your customers where they're at you have to meet the public where they're at but it's there's a huge disparity in like where people's awareness and and education is around this topic so it's it's kind of fun in in a challenging way but um you know it's it's a work in progress so you know it comes back to this design thinking um concept i've been really into this design thinking process lately thinking about like okay I know what I've been up against as a founder, you know, we launched these products. We're like, oh, these products are X, Y, Z and they require X, Y, Z. And then we went out and realized that we didn't have the supply chains and the value added processing in place to make them come to life. So that was a real wake up call that, I, you know, that we were functioning in the typical brand fashion of like, let's make this product and let's expect the supply chain and the industry to, to accommodate us and our needs. So now as of last year, we formally put into place that we are moving forward with what we call our regenerative by design product development pathway process where moving forward, any reblendings of our products, any new product development moving forward is actually built around what farmers need to be growing to reach these regenerative standards of biodiversity, what is available as far as value-added processing infrastructure. And so it's like working through the process in reverse. And it's, um, it's a fascinating thing. And I think that you know, this whole concept of rethinking our systems and our food systems, finance systems, kind of from the, the reverse model of like, what is what do what does it need to be to foster regenerative principles rather than how do we force the systems to serve us, you know, and our regenerative needs? And I'd, I'd love to hear your ideas about how, you know, capital plays into that, because I think, again, we're expecting capital to flex to our needs, but capital does need to flex to our needs. It's really a a give and take. And there's a very intentional design process there that needs to be developed over the next few years to make it a little more smooth. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a huge question because we go back to this, like working within a structure we're already in and how do we, how do we create within that? Uh, 
But the, the three things that come to my mind, um, and this is a lot based on the work we're doing right now with um, John Fullerton, but, uh, you know, the questions that they encourage us to ask is, uh, how do we create the conditions to thrive? And I think it's similar to what you're doing, but how are we how are we creating the conditions to thrive for everybody within the system, for every every person that is part of the system you're trying to create or work with? Um, and that that's a starting point in my mm-hmm. mind. If you have a mission and you, you look at who the is, where the nodes are, where people connect, and how is each one of them building? How can we build a system that will help them thrive, or what conditions they need? Mm-hmm. Um, the other two things I think about you know, when we're thinking about the design, and this is me thinking about okay, so how can I really apply like regenerative finance to design? Like, what if we needed to redesign RFSI? Which of course, we always need to keep reevaluating and, re- and redesigning, I think, and trying to be more regenerative. So the two that have stuck out with me so far are the two principles that I would use probably first. Anthony, I haven't talked about this yet, so we'll have a meeting about it later. <laughs> We're getting a sneak peek here. <laughs> right, right. Well, if we could just use this podcast to develop our business. That'd be great. There we go. Um, but <laughs> the two principles Thank you, You're welcome. For one, which we kind of touched on here. <laughs> which are um, viewing wealth holistically. So going back to this idea of we're trying to um, we're trying to build a regenerative, uh, let's say, investment vehicle with one measure or one one measure of how we we view wealth, uh, which is capital. Mm-hmm. Um, but how can we incorporate in and people are doing this already, but how do we continue to incorporate in other ideas of wealth, which are like culture and diversity and yeah. natural capital, social capital? Uh, and then the other one that, you know, when I think about designing an organization is this idea, the principle of empowered participation, which uh, is something I think we all need to do more of, which is how do we empower all the stakeholders involved as we build this? Uh, something that I know Regenerative is is working on. We all are as a space, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure how we get things uh, credibly working models if we don't do that. Yeah, it's kind of like what... what- what Anthony said earlier of like, um, it's a less extractive mindset. It's like looking at, it's like growing the pie instead of growing your piece of the pie kind of a concept. Yeah. Have you, I mean, I have not finished this book, but, uh, I've, I've loved the idea so far, which the infinite, uh, was it infinite mindset or is that what it's Simon Sinek? Yeah. I've heard about it, but I have not read it. I'm I'm sadly behind on reading. <laughs> I can't imagine what else you'd be doing right now. Yeah, yeah. But reading's so much fun. So hopefully this summer we can get caught up. But yeah, it, there's a lot of, um, you know, study and just value, like where we're assigning value, this whole axiology piece. We had Trip on the podcast earlier and we were talking yeah. about that whole value assignment process. It's it's really fundamental to changing these big systems on on big levels of, of scale. So that way it affects people, um, in a, like a more equitable fashion so that like, uh, there's a lot more improvement in well-being. like human flourishing is also something that comes up a lot. And human flourishing is a lot more than just having money. It's having health, it's having safety. It's like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs on steroids. So it's cool stuff. Uh, I'm a little bit more of a fan of regenerative design doing instead of regenerative design thinking, mm-hmm. um, which I, which I do think maybe they're the same thing, but if you ask any farmer that's gone regenerative, yeah. like, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. They started small, they invested, it was trial and error and they yeah. learned. And now after a certain period of time, like they get to a, to a spot. So there's obviously a ton of thought there, but there's mm-hmm. a ton of doing there. Mm-hmm. And So I would flip the regenerative design conversation on its head and say, how do we enable productive failure? 
because mm-hmm. we're so failure averse as a society, like failure right. so bad and actually failure is the greatest thing ever. Um, Good so point. how do we change <laughs> finance and capital markets to enable failure that's still okay or recoverable, or we're still getting something out of it that is still a value, but it's not traditional success or it's not traditional success for the first one, two, three years or whatever. Um, and it ultimately like leads to a success down the road. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I have a friend in Toronto who is really focused on this concept and building an incubator around it. And I don't know if you know him, but I'm really excited to get you two acquainted if you're not already, because that is a big premise of his motivation as well. And looking at that whole doing process and that failure is a part of it. Mm -hmm. And then observation being so key. And we are going to have Ray Arcoletta on the show next month, I think. And we're literally not going to talk about soil. We're going to talk about the power of observation and the, Mm -hmm. you know, ripple effect. And literally Ray and I are going to talk about that. And I'm so excited for that because he, he can really go there in a, in a very intense, amazing way. And, and it's, and it's just going to be cool because we're going to lean into that hard. And I think he's going to have the same pushback on that design thinking it, that, that could be mm-hmm. a trap of like thinking it's perfect, et cetera, and kind of setting yourself up for failure. So I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, as far as action, I think a lot of the times with any of this, people are like, well, what can I do? Like, um, you know, like this friend of mine I was talking to this morning, he's like, I just look around and I feel so hopeless some days. Like, it seems like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I've got kids, I've got grandkids. I really worry about everything. And, and and what can I do? Like, what can I do to make something better? And what do you guys feel like the best action items are right now to, to make an impact on say climate or food security, et cetera? Spend money, but I'm, I'm gonna let Anthony articulate on that a little, <laughs> a little, a little. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of levers to pull, right? So you can put your you can put your dollars to work on brands that are doing the things that you you'd like to see. You can vote for politicians that are, uh, you know, getting behind soil and climate initiatives. You can do advocacy work and let other people know and educate people. You can produce media. I mean, if any, mm-hmm. if Kiss the Ground and Biggest Little Farm taught us anything, it's that there's other modalities to yes. to play other than just the food that we eat, even though that is so important. Um, but it is overwhelming. I mean, we live in a, we live in a world where people are very busy. People work very hard. There's not a lot of time to just chill and relax. Mm -hmm. Um, so my greatest advice is always just to be curious and kind of listen to your intuition about what you are curious about and let that, that guide you because everything that I've made an impact on, I think in my life has ultimately started with curiosity where Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what the hell I was talking about, but I was curious about it. And so I started learning about it and it led to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it just created yeah. this domino effect that, that led to some really cool stuff. You didn't talk yourself out of it right in the beginning. You were like, I'm curious and I want to learn more. Like you didn't stop yep. yourself from taking the deep dive. And here you are on the regenerative by design podcast. <laughs> so yes. I love that. Sarah, um, you know, I know you said spending cause I think consumer spending is a huge driver and being intentional about it because even if you're a real minimalist and you try to not purchase much at all, you know, there's still a huge focus on being intentional about where you're putting your money and voting with your dollars, et cetera. But you know, how do you feel about that? 
Uh, I mean, I think you're right. I think spending money, I, I meant with your purchasing choices, but I think mm-hmm. before that is really the education piece. And so I struggle with saying like, educate yourselves because I'm a mom, I work, I understand how hard mm-hmm. it is to go out and educate myself. So yeah. I really do like Anthony's idea of just be curious. And what I was thinking in my head when he was saying that was just ask questions. I think about my sisters who, good, good grief, I've been in, working in agriculture for 15 years and they, they don't, I don't know if they know what I do. Um, they yeah. don't understand it. And, it. and it's my fault for not education, educating, you know, and talking to them more about it. Um, but also it's just, if they're not doing it, they're very, very smart ladies. Then there are mm-hmm. other people who aren't. So yeah. this meat in the middle we have as a food, as a food industry, investing industry, we have a job to do to bring education to people, but yeah. There's also that curiosity and asking questions piece that we need. Uh, yeah. And engaging those curious people where they're at. And I love that you mentioned like kiss the ground and biggest little farm and those kind of things, because it, it's like, we underestimate the power of entertainment as teacher. And um, it can be a really mm. powerful notion for people because it's a relaxing way to get into a deep topic without feeling like it's work you know, then it's, it's fun. It's entertaining. They connect at a very human level to what's going on. And, and I think that that can be really hopeful. So in general, like, you know, what, right now, what is giving you hope? What are your big points that are making you feel hopeful for the future? Uh, this sounds close to wrap up. So I'm going to go first. So Anthony can wrap us up with his powerful statements. Uh, but I, I would say, not so much today, but the entire five and a half years I've been working strictly in this regenerative space, which is when I came over, came over from um, conventional and commercial agriculture and agribusiness, it was distinct. Immediately, you could feel a difference in the way this space works, whether it's eco agriculture, regenerative farming, investing, whatever. Uh, people in this space want to collaborate. Uh, and that's not true in every space that you work in. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's much hope in one collaborating with the folks that are already here, but also collaborating and bringing more and more people into this. So that's what continues to give me hope about and, and like drives me to keep working in this space. It's yeah. Awesome. That's great. Yes. It, it's such a collaborative space, which is so fun. The, the two things that give me hope are on the capital side, there is so much demand that is just swarming to place capital in this space. Uh, you know, Sarah and I had a call with a very, very large bank the, the other day, yesterday that has a $1.6 billion fund. Wow. They're going to invest in sustainable projects and sustainable agriculture being a part of that. And they're trying to place 50 to hundred million dollar checks in growth equity. And they have nowhere to put it in regenerative ag because <clears throat> we're literally not ready to take it. And so wow. that kind of capital that's going to mobilize some of these things that are happening now over the the next decade plus Mm -hmm. is super exciting and gives me a ton of hope on the capital side. And then one thing that I have to remember to do and remind myself to do to get hope is to go visit farms and ranches because I I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. I grew up in the land of, you know, monocrop corn and soy. And so my idea of agriculture, my whole life was this Victorian rows of, of corn and soybean and there's a way to do that regeneratively, but there's also way more regenerative biodiverse operations out there. And once you go to those places and you, and you sit on that land, you stand on that land and you see it, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's nothing more hope inspiring. So yeah. I, I need to probably do that more, but I think I got to hold myself accountable to doing it at least quarterly yeah. um, to get, to get out of my zoom square and see, you know, this is why I do this work. And this is so much better for all of us than, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the current paradigm. 
Yeah. Cause when you're out in the middle of a field and you see life on so many levels, not just crops growing mm. super neon green, but you start seeing all the, you know, other critters, you hear birds, you hear bees, you look down and like everything's crawling with life. That's a very, mm. it's a very motivating connection and feeling. And I've definitely been in some fields that didn't have that feel at all. And you couldn't hear any insects at all. So, you know, I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the farmers I know their number one thing that they tell me is like, please advocate for farm days. Like, please advocate for people coming out. Like we have open farm days in the summer where everyone can come and we barbecue and it's, it's usually the same people that come every year. And how do we reach a bigger audience? How do we get more people engaged mm -hmm. with, um, with that? And I think it's a really powerful notion. So, you know, thanks again to the people in the film world and who are doing documentaries and are doing, you know, entertainment that helps lean into this. Um, it's pretty exciting. So how can our listeners find out more about you guys? I'm sure that there are people who are going to want to follow you. They're going to want to get a newsletter. Maybe they want to invest. Maybe it's an investor that's like, oh my gosh, I never knew about these guys. How do I get involved? Yeah, that is an excellent question, Joni. Um, we are <laughs> online at rfsi-forum.com. That's where you can find everything. Uh, but yeah, you, we have a we have a soon-to-be weekly newsletter. We have virtual and cool. in-person events um, that are great, designed to be great uh, educational opportunities for investors and those who are also seeking capital. So, looking for opportunities to connect, uh, we would love to help you with that. Uh, we also have a pretty robust uh, or active LinkedIn uh, channel, also at Regenerative Food Systems investment. Anthony, did I forget anything? No, LinkedIn, our emails are on the website. Feel free great. to use any of the forms to reach out to us. I mean, it'd be great to connect with anyone. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I've learned a lot. I always do during these recordings. It's really quite something. It's like being in school again. Um, <laughs> invite all these people on and, and just drink from a fire hose. And it's pretty exciting and gives me a lot of hope for what we're all working for and how we're making a better world for everybody and, and all the critters on the planet. So thanks so much. And you guys have a wonderful day. Thanks, Joni. Thank you, Joni. This was awesome. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.